The reading this morning is taken from Ecclesiastes chapters 11 and 12. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days comes and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and run rises up, at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the, broken, or, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, 
and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Heavenly Father, you are our creator. In you we live and move and have our being. In you we find peace and joy. We confess that we have sought those things from other things, and they have left us more empty than before. But we thank you that through Christ you forgave us our sins and lead us back to you, the fountain of living water. Help us now to trust you and remember you, to fear you and love you, for you have made us yourself. Amen. Okay, let's turn to uh, the Bible then and Ecclesiastes. And we're actually finishing Ecclesiastes this week. If you don't know Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is one of the books in the Old Testament. And the author, he calls himself the preacher, is investigating what he calls life under the sun, the secular worldview. What life is like when there, if, what life is like if you think there is no God or if God plays no meaningful part in your life. And the preacher, the author, has been relentlessly exposing the faults and the failures of such a worldview. And he's told us it can give you a secular worldview where you think there is no God. That can never give you a sense of hope for the future. It can never give you a purpose for your life. And it most certainly can never give you any more moral foundation to live by. And in these last two chapters, okay, he gives us the alternative to that. And that is the life of faith. So first point this morning, risk generously. Look at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Or literally... Send your bread upon the waters. Because in the ancient world, if you traded grain, you literally had to send your bread on the waters. You had to use trading ships. But every time you did, every time you sent your bread, your grain upon the waters, you were taking a risk, weren't you? Because if the ship goes down, it's not just the bread, the grain that you lose, it is your livelihood. Plus, it was risky because given the months spent in transit, it could be months or years before you saw a profit. So it's risky. But if you don't risk, if you didn't risk, you would never see a profit. Okay, why does the preacher highlight risk-taking as the first marker of the life of faith? Well, because in an under-the-sun world where you think there is no God lovingly weaving the storyline of your life, where you think there is no divine defender protecting you, you are at the mercy of time and chance, as the, we saw the preacher say last week. You are, at the mercy, you are at the mercy of events. You don't know what rainy day is around the corner. 
So you dare not risk. Life is risky enough as it is. So you play life safe, suffocatingly safe, and you hold your stuff and those whom you love too tightly. But there is one thing you will risk. Again, that is your integrity. Because if you don't want to risk, you are unlikely to stand up for what you know to be true and right when it is unpopular. Because that's risky. If it's unpopular, you're going to have flat coming your way. So bizarrely, the one thing you will risk when you don't want to risk being unpopular is you will risk your integrity. Or, instead of fearing to risk, if you think there is no God and no eternity, you will risk foolishly. You'll take too many risks. You'll take up base jumping or whatever it is that gives you a rush because, hey, there's no God. So life is ultimately meaningless. As one base jumper said, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Exactly, the preacher says. When you think life is nothing, you need something to give you a thrill. So cheat death for as long as you can. Risk foolishly. Okay, so when it comes to risk, if you follow an under-the-sun worldview, as the preacher calls it, no God, no eternity, no future judgment, you will either be self-protective, because life's risky out there, or you will be self-indulgent, because, hey, life is meaningless. But the life of faith, the preacher says, it does something very different. Because when you know that there is a God in loving, sovereign control of your life, hey, you're not going to be paralyzed by fear, but neither will you risk foolishly. You will risk wisely and generously. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Donald Rumsfeld, the uh, former American uh, Defense Secretary who died uh, this week, famously said, as we know, there are known knowns, things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. We know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. And he said, it is the latter category that tends to be the difficult ones. And the preacher would say, the author of Ecclesiastes would say, yes, but, yes, you don't know what disaster may happen to you. And you also don't know whether it even will happen. But rather than that being difficult, let it shape the way that you live. Verse 2 again. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Don't put all your grain in one boat. Spread your risk. Risk wisely. Okay, but there's another way of reading that, isn't there? Because in this day, in the ancient world, when a rich person gave a feast, he would send food portions from his table to the poor. And the preacher is saying, hey, guys, do that. Do that. Risk generously. Okay, even though you know that life is inherently risky, 
that even though you know that there are unknown unknowns, risk yourself on others. Use your capital. Use your social. Use your financial. Use your time capital. And give yourself away on behalf of others. The one thing you should not do, he is saying, is play it suffocatingly safe. Verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. In other words, there are no knowns. Okay, some things in life are just certain, aren't they? Like the Dutch lose at football. <laughs> and the Germans lose at football. And the French lose at football. And, he says, clouds that are heavy bring rain. And a tree that falls over, doesn't matter where it falls over, it is not getting up again. There are some things in life that are just certain. But, he says, not all of life is like that. And if you wait for certainty in life, you will never do anything. Verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, don't be paralyzed by fear. Don't wait for perfect circumstances because they're never going to come. Instead, let the fact that you don't know the future spur you to action. Because even though you don't know, God does. Verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Hey, let's just be honest. You know, this is what the preacher is saying. You don't know what of your work will succeed. What if what you put your hands to? You don't know what of that, what that's going, which of that is going to succeed. But he's saying God's work always succeeds. And you can risk wisely. And you can risk generously. You can pour yourself out into the lives of others, not because you hold your future in your hands, but because God does. You know, Jesus told a parable, didn't he, about servants who were given money to invest whilst their master was absent. Which servant was condemned when the master returned? Was it those who risked? It wasn't, was it? It was the one who played it safe. The one who hid his talent in the ground. I dare not risk. And an under the sun worldview, no God, no eternity, no future judgment, will leave you overly risk averse because you're fear for the future. So you will build yourself a bunker He's, life is risky. I've got to protect myself and, and others, me, my family. Or you will build yourself a barn, like the rich farmer in one of Jesus' other parables. You'll hoard your stuff. You'll think that life is for you, that all of this stuff is for you to spend on your life of comfort. You'll either build yourself a bunker or you'll build yourself a barn. You'll either be self-protective or self-indulgent. But if you trust God and you know he is in sovereign control of all things, including your life, 
You can be self-sacrificial because you can risk generously. Verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, but whether both alike will be good. Not everything you attempt, not every person you invest in is going to work out. Not, not everything you attempt is going to succeed. But listen, God's work in and through you will always succeed. You see, there is an above the sun, there is a kingdom of God logic that says, if you try and save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life and lay your life down, you will find it. The kingdom of God logic says it is in giving that you receive, that it's in dying to ourselves that we find life. As Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Why? Why is that the logic of the kingdom of God? Because the Lord Jesus sowed himself for you, because he risked everything for you, because he gave up everything for you. And when you know that, and that begins to sink in, you can find it in yourself to risk yourself on others. So church, look above the sun, put your trust in God, and risk generously. Secondly, rejoice greatly. Verses seven to eight. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Now, I mean, I hope you've seen this as we've gone through. A secular worldview can give you absolutely no reason in and of itself to rejoice, can it? Because either you will see that, you'll see clearly what it says, that everything that you could take joy in, like music or art or your relationships or love, they're just chemical reactions in your brain. They have no meaning. And even your accomplishments, they also are ultimately meaningless. As the, the word the preacher uses, hevel, it's just smoke. And you will despair if you believe that. Or you will find joy in those things despite what the secular, godless worldview tells you. And you will find joy in those things. And maybe you'll even try and find joy in them to anesthetize yourself to what that secular worldview is telling you. Either way, the secular worldview in and of itself can never give you a reason for joy. But hey, Christianity can. Light is sweet, the preacher says, because life is sweet, especially when England beat Germany at football and you have a German son-in-law. Life, life is beautifully sweet. Life is sweet because it is to be savoured, because you have been created by your creator to delight in life. But the preacher, the author, he's not burying his head in the sand, is he? Okay, he knows that death is coming. Verse 8. Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Okay, it's that he knows. He's not burying his head in the sand. 
It is that he knows that a life of trusting God can give you reasons for joy, even in the face of death. In fact, he says, it is not just that you can rejoice, it's that you must rejoice. He commands it, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Now, by young, he probably means anyone who has not yet entered the phase of terminal decline that we're going to look at in chapter 12 in a moment. Okay, so if you haven't yet entered that, that phase, hey, this morning we're all young, aren't we? This is you. Okay, think about it. What is it with an above-the-sun worldview that there is a God and he is in sovereign control of your life and he is lovingly weaving the storyline of your life? What is it with that worldview that can command you to rejoice? Because it tells you that your life and the things of your life, they are gifts to you from your loving Heavenly Father. And not to recognize that is to insult the gift giver. Look at verse 9. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Okay, God has invited you to a feast. He's invited you to a party, the preacher is saying. So feast. Come to the party, enjoy it, but live knowing there is a final judgment. Now you might hear that and think, oh great, he sounds like my dad. You know, you, know, you, you, know, you, go, you go to your dad and say, can I go to this party? And he says, sure, you can go to the party, just don't make any noise, don't make any trouble and make sure you are back by nine. You can go to the party, but you're not allowed to have any fun. Is that what the preacher is saying? No. He is saying, you're young. We, we are. You've still got breath in you, so take hold of life with both hands. But as you do, realize that there are counterfeits to true joy. So live within God's boundaries so you can experience the joy that is really joy. As G.K. Chesterton said, the boundaries God sets are not the walls of a prison. They are the walls of a playground within which things can get really wild. Okay, but here's the thing. It is not just the lawbreaker who faces judgment. It's the lawkeeper. It's the one who refuses to enjoy God's good, God's good gifts and leaves them wrapped up in a corner. Like the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son who doesn't believe that his father could possibly be that good. As the people of Israel stood on the threshold of entering the promised land, Moses set before them blessings and curses. And the curses are what would happen to them if they failed to obey God. And in among those curses, just listen to what Moses says. Because one reason for judgment, one reason for a curse coming would be 
because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. In other words, when God abundantly blesses you, and guys, look at us, we are abundantly blessed. When God abundantly blesses you, it is a sin not to be filled with joy because it is to live as if God is a liar, as if he is not the great and generous and gracious gift giver that he is. In the last battle, the, um, the last of the Narnia Chronicles, the curtain comes down on Narnia. And all who, there's this great scene where all who love Aslan the Lion King, he's a picture of Christ, they're all streaming into Aslan's country. But there is a party of dwarves who are sat on the ground with their eyes tightly shut and they refuse all offers to come and join in the party because they say they refuse to be taken in. They refuse to believe that Aslan is that good. Aslan even sets a feast before them. But they start fighting over the feast. And when they eat it, they think it is straw and dirty water. And it's this amazing feast. To which Aslan says, you see, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Exactly, the preacher says. So leave the prison of your mind. Leave the prison of an under-the-sun worldview and come out into the light, come into the sunshine and enjoy the sunshine of God's blessing. As Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Because when you know that in the Lord, when you know that in the Lord Jesus, you are loved and you, you are chosen and you are called and you are forgiven, you have multiple reasons to rejoice. But Things are going to try and rob you of that joy, aren't they? Verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Okay, so there are, there are things that vex your heart. There, there are psychological things that can sap your joy. Now just think of some, like comparisons. Okay. Teddy Roosevelt, the um, US president, said comparison is the thief of joy. Why? Because if you constantly compare what you have or don't have with others, okay, it'll vex your heart, won't you? Won't it? You'll be constantly thinking, yeah, I wish I had what they have, and you won't be happy with what you have. Or you will compare yourselves to others, and then you'll feel proud about what you have. But pride is another thing that will rob you of joy. Because when you're proud, you're going to look down on other people, those people who can't help you go further up the ladder. 
And you'll look on them as inconveniences, and therefore you will spend your life in a near perpetual state of irritation. So, so comparison will rob you of joy, pride will rob you of joy, and then there is the cynicism and the disbelief of others, because that can breed disillusionment in your own heart. And the preacher is saying, remove those things from your heart. But, psychological things, but they're also physical things, he says. Pain in your body. And health issues can sap your joy, can't they? So, do what you can, he's saying. Do what you can to stay as healthy as you can for as long as you can. Okay, so, risk generously. Rejoice greatly, but thirdly, remember humbly. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Now, notice what he doesn't say. Okay, he doesn't say, remember also your God in the days of your youth. He says, remember your creator. Why? Remember you are a creature. Remember what Augustine said. You have made us for yourself, O God. Remember that you will only find true joy by finding your identity in him, not in you trying to create an identity for yourself. You will only find true joy in living the life and for the purpose that he designed you for. And remember his character and let it shape your character. Remember his protection and don't fear. Remember his provision and let that cultivate thankfulness, which is a direct path to joy. And remember his greatness and let that humble you and prompt you to worship him. And to remember is active, isn't it? It's not passive and we need to remember because we are so prone to forget. It's why the Lord established the feast of Passover for the Jewish people, so that every year they had this reminder, here it's coming around again, Passover's coming around again, time to remember that God is the God who sets people free. It's why Jesus said of his last supper, also at Passover, of breaking bread and communion, do this, in remembrance of me. Why? Because you and I are prone to forget. We are prone to forget that the Son of God had to die to save me from my sin. But we're also prone to forget that the Son of God loves me so much that he did die for my sins. Okay, but why remember your Creator when you're young, and can't it wait till we're old? Can I, get, can I leave the religion bit till I'm older? No, the preacher says, you need to do it now, verse one, before the evil days come, before the days come when you become increasingly frail. Now, in our Western secular culture, no one likes to face aging, do they? We idolize youth. And, and you will be offered creams and hair dyes, or in some cases, hair transplants. And you'll be offered Botox. And you'll be offered surgery to prop up those things that sag. 
But if you think about it, a worldview that cannot face death, that's a bizarre worldview. And it's a bizarre worldview because the one thing in life that you can be certain of is death. So a worldview that cannot face it, what, what help is that to you? How much better, the preacher says, to face it and let it inform how you live now? Because the house that you build now is a house that you are going to live in in old age. The garden that you plant now is the one you're going to walk in then. The wells that you dig now are the ones that you are going to drink from then. The friends that you make, the company that you keep, the character that you forge, whether you live to get or live to give, all of those are going to determine what and who is going to be there with you and for you when those days of aging come. So the preacher says, cultivate your relationship with your creator now. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, before all those things that brighten up your life, like friends and family and hopes and ambitions, before they're slowly extinguished, before the clouds return after the rain. I mean, when you're young, there's always light at the end of the tunnel, isn't there? Things might be bad now, but you know that one day the sky is going to clear and the sun's going to come out again. But when you are old and frail, the sky never clears. One rain cloud follows another. Verse 3. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. And Mrs. Tilford recently wrote to the Guardian newspaper and said... How to find out if you are old? Fall down. If people laugh, you're young. If people panic, you're old. Okay, it's tragically true, isn't it? Okay, your hands tremble and your legs can no longer take your weight. Verse three again. The, the, the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Your teeth fall out and your sight fails. Verse four, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound, sound of grinding is low. Your hearing goes. The young, they're still out there working. They're still at the grindstone, but you are increasingly socially cut off by your deafness to the outside world. And one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. Your sleep pattern becomes erratic and pleasure in the joys of life diminish. Verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. Fears increase. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Your hair goes white, if there's any left to go white. Your mobility is reduced. And as for sex, hey, you can forget about that. And when you're young, you think, this will never happen to me. Oh, yes, it will, the preacher says. One commentator quotes the British author Terry Pratchett as saying, inside every old person is a young person wondering, what happened? Life happened, the preacher says. So, 
Remember your creator now, because verse five, man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Your funeral is one day nearer than it was yesterday. But when death finally does come, it brings about the reversal of creation. Genesis tells us, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. But the end point of life, the preacher says, is verse seven, and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the, preacher, sorry, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. What is that? It's death, it's the hevel of life, it's the seeming pointlessness of life in a secular under the sun world. But as C.S. Lewis wrote, the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so because through the resurrection of Christ, death has been defeated and the new creation is coming. So live in expectation of that. Remember your creator now. Risk generously, rejoice greatly, remember humbly, and finally, fear reverently. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The secular worldview tells you, you set the rules for your life. You're autonomous, you're self-sufficient. Don't cede control of your life to anybody else. And the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes says, who are you kidding? Who are you kidding? You have virtually no control over your life whatsoever. Instead, fear God. Recognize his greatness and your smallness. Recognize his fullness and your emptiness. Recognize his holiness and your unholiness. And as you do everything else, your dreams and your desires, your strengths and your successes, your fears and your failures, they will all begin to find their right places. Because as you begin to fear him, you will want to obey him. Every worldview, doesn't matter which one you choose, every worldview will influence the way that you live. So the preacher says, hey, why not pick the one that makes your character more like God's? Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, if the secular worldview tells you that everything ultimately is meaningless, it's hevel, the fact of the final judgment that one day you will stand before your creator, that tells you everything is full of meaning, which is great, but how are you gonna get through that final judgment? Well, look back to verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And a goad is a stick that you use to prod an animal 
or maybe a child, a stick that you use to prod an animal with to get it to go in the direction you want it to go, isn't it? And a nail firmly fixed is one that you can hang stuff on because it can take the weight. And the preacher is saying, the collected sayings, the collected writings, the words of the wise given by one shepherd, they are the guide that you need and they are the thing that you can hang everything else on. Question is, who is that one shepherd? Well, the only other times in the Old Testament that one shepherd is mentioned are in Ezekiel, where God says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And also, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And then Jesus comes, the greater son of David, and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There will be one flock, one shepherd. I am the one shepherd. Jesus says, the one shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, the shepherd who knew all about nails firmly fixed. And guys, you can stand in the final judgment without fear because at the cross, Christ bore your judgment for you. So now you don't have to obey God out of fear of judgment. You can obey him out of the joy of gratitude, not out of duty, but out of delight. And as you do, the collected sayings, the words of the wise, they become your guide and the thing that you can hang everything else on. If you follow a secular worldview, it will leave you hanging in the air. If you follow Christ, you will find solid ground to stand on. Fear him with reverence and awe and joy. And you will find yourself increasingly being changed into the image of your creator, which is what you were always supposed to be. And you will become more bold, even as you become more humble. And you will become more kind even as you become more courageous and you will become more generous as you become more selfless. And under the sun, secular worldview can never give you any of those things. So why choose it? Risk generously, rejoice greatly, remember humbly and fear reverently. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, he is so good, and he is so good to us. Lord, you know the state of each of our hearts this morning. Lord, you know the um, mess that we make of life. Lord, the bad decisions that we take. Lord, the challenges that we face. But we thank you that we can come to you, our one shepherd, the God of all mercy, the one where we can find forgiveness and with it hope and purpose. Help us today and every day, Father, 
to remember you, our creator, and so rejoice greatly. In his name we pray. Amen.